I invite you to turn with me in God's Word, first to the New Testament, Luke chapter 1, and then to Psalm 98. Mary's Magnificat seems to draw upon, echo Psalm 98, so I'd like to read that this morning and the narrative right before it, Luke chapter 1 at verse 39. Luke 1 at verse 39, we give our attention to God's word. We read, following here the the story with Zachariah and Elizabeth, and the angel visit to Mary. Then Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the babe leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she spoke with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. Blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He's scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He's put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her house. We turn backwards to Psalm 98. Psalm 98, a psalm. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained him the victory. The Lord has made known his salvation, his righteousness he's revealed in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his mercy and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth in song. Rejoice and sing praises. Sing to the Lord with a harp, with a harp and the sound of a psalm, with trumpets and the sound of a horn. Shout joyfully before the Lord, the King. Let the sea roar, and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills be joyful together before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth. With righteousness he shall judge the world and the peoples with equity. Let's bow before God in prayer. 
O Lord, our God, whose word is truth and who gives to his people words to believe and words to sing, we thank you, Lord, for the book of Psalms. We thank you for this psalm and for its revelation of our mighty Savior. Bless us, God, as we ponder it, cause it to be preached in truth, and give us faith by your word today. In Jesus' name and to his praise, amen. Well, people of God, in this Advent season, I like to focus upon some different scripture texts with the theme, Jesus, Savior of the World. Savior of the World. That's a a wonderful title. It's, of course, not one that I invented, but it's one the Holy Spirit gave to us in John chapter 4 and 1 John chapter 4. In John 4, you have the, the Samaritan woman at the well, and then you have the Samaritan people who meet Jesus, invite him to stay with them, and he does a couple days. And then upon his departure, they're able to say to the Samaritan woman, now we believe not because of what you said, but we've heard him ourselves, and we know that he is the Christ, the Savior of the world. And then in 1 John chapter 4, the apostle is able to say as an apostle, and we have seen and testified that the Father sent the Son as Savior of the world. The Father sent the Son as Savior of the world. One of my hopes and prayers in looking at a few texts under that theme is that we might be encouraged in our mission and evangelistic enthusiasm. We might be reminded in this Christmas season that our celebration of the Christ is not merely personal or privileged or private. If we have a a little Jesus for little people to be kept private in our little assembly, then we've misunderstood the purpose of his coming because the one who has come is been sent by the Father to be the Savior of the world. And Psalm 98, I think, explodes the, the walls that we sometimes erect too narrowly. And sometimes our church walls are shaken a bit when God's people take up and sing Isaac Watts's well-known hymn, Joy to the World. Joy to the World, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king. And that hymn, you may know, of Isaac Watts was based on verses of Psalm 98. In fact, it was published in his Psalms of David, imitated in the language of the New Testament, where Watts set out to interpret all of the Psalms in a Christocentric way in terms of the New Testament fulfillment and to paraphrase them in such a way that their fulfillment would be obvious and vibrant to God's people in their singing. And it's an interesting fact that many like to point out that Joy to the World was never intended to be a, Christ, a Christmas hymn. It wasn't written as a Christmas hymn. It's a bit of a mystery how it became a Christmas hymn. And some have said that that really, since it's based on Psalm 98, it's, it's not even really this hymn of Watts. It's not really even about the first advent of Christ, but about his return at judgment. But I think that's a bit misleading. Because as the Old Testament spoke of the coming of the Messiah, it didn't know about two separate events, a first coming and a second coming. It, it viewed these as one spectacular event. The Messiah comes. And you have to read Psalm 98 that way. And if you understand Psalm 98 that way, then you might well understand joy to the world that way. 
It's about the first and the coming of, second coming of Jesus. It's about his great victory. But we can, as we, as we sing joy to the world and as we ponder Psalm 98, we can be saved from a sentimentalization of, of a baby Jesus where we think he's, he's this helpless one. And we maybe we pull him out of the closet at Christmas time and then we, we pack him away. He's some little figurine. But Psalm 98 explodes all of that because it proclaims the mighty king, the savior of the world, the great and coming judge of all things. And so our hearts should be lifted up to know that Jesus is not for a season or for a few worshipers, but he is the savior of the world. Let's think about that this morning as we look at Psalm 98. It has three stanzas. In the first three verses, I invite you to notice the magnificent victory that's been achieved by the Savior. The magnificent victory that's been achieved by the Savior. Verses 1 through 3, and then verses 4 through 6. The second stanza, we see this exuberant praise that is deserved by the King. The exuberant praise deserved by the King. And in the final stanza, we see the healing Return the healing return that is promised by the judge. Well, first of all, if we're going to invite all the world to sing, if there's a reason to sing, we need to know what the reason is. And the first stanza tells us the reason. It's because God has accomplished. He himself has done it, a glorious, glorious thing. Tells us why. All should shout. Because there's been a great victory. And victories, we know, should be celebrated. Victories are rare. They should be marked out. Victories are special. They should be commemorated. And we, we do that in things trivial like sports, right? We erupt in praise, great plays, or victories, or championships. And we do it in more profound ways. We think of the victories of war. Maybe we remember the victory of World War II, and, and we even think, where would we be today if, if we hadn't won the war? But the greatest victory to be marked out, of course, is the victory of the Lord our God. And the psalm begins, O oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he, he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained him the victory. Psalm doesn't tell us what particular victory might have been in mind of, of the psalmist when he composed these words. Was it the exodus from Egypt or was it the return from Babylon? God did great things for his people in the sight of the nations. But what the psalm does make crystal clear is that it's the Lord himself who has done it and no other. Remember in Isaiah 63, God says, I looked but there was no one to help, and I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation for me. Or in Isaiah 59, Then the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his own arm brought salvation for him. And that's the idea, right? That the Lord has done it. Now, whatever victory... The psalmist might have had in mind, this is clearly prophetic as well, looking to the, the greatest victory in which God would spare nothing but send his own son to come and accomplish his own beloved, coming down from heaven, taking on human flesh. And, 
and coming to save in such a way that, that we all have to say it's all of God, right? From, from the very conception, right, that a virgin conceives, God is saying it's all of me, it's not of man's will or choice. And then from, from Christ rising from the dead, God is shouting it's all of me, it's not by human effort or strength. It's all of Christ. And God brought a deliverance to an enslaved people. And why would God bring deliverance to guilty sinners who so rashly, treacherously betrayed their maker? John Calvin asks, what could have been less looked for than that light should have arisen upon these dark places and that righteousness should have appeared in the habitations of desperate wickedness? Why did God act? Why would God send his beloved? Why does the arm of God come to save? It's, it's not that we're deserving. It's not that God needs us. But verse 3 says he remembered his mercy and his faithfulness, his amen to the house of Israel. God in mercy made promises and God in truth keeps his promises. The reason is found in God, his love and his good pleasure. And it must have been hard in the Old Testament days as they waited for the Messiah to come to wonder if perhaps God had forgotten his promise because they had, they'd seen different victories and battle throughout the ages, but they had not seen the great victory that their lives needed. And years went by, and decades went by, and centuries went by, and millennia went by. And where is this salvation of God that will make all the difference to our lives? But in the fullness of time, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ, Christ came, Christ died for us. And it's in Christ that Jesus has won the victory. When you look at this, that God's right hand and holy arm have gained the victory that finds its fulfillment in our Lord Jesus. Charles Spurgeon, who's been dubbed the Prince of Preachers, he died in 1892, but in his work on the Psalms called The Treasury of David, in which he explains the Psalms and then gathers up a lot of quotes and so forth from others, he writes, not by the aid of others, but by his own unweaponed hand, his marvelous conquests have been achieved. Sin, death, and hell fell beneath his solitary prowess, and the idols and heirs of mankind have been overthrown and smitten by his hand alone. It's a marvelous thing to think of Christ, overcoming all obstacles. Jesus Christ breaking through all barriers. Jesus Christ coming with might and strength to save. And yet saving in ways that, that seemed so weak, right? He speaks a word and by it a demon is cast out. He, he touches someone and by that someone is healed. He lays down his life and lets people beat on him and crucify him. And by that he wins victory over Satan and takes away our sin and guilt and reconciles us to God. He has done it. The real issue of our life has been dealt with in Jesus Christ. Where would we be today if Christ had not come? What is our natural condition? What is our natural standing before God? It's not one of peace. But Christ has come. And he's done it all. And that's to be our joy and our confidence that he has done it. The 7th century... Minister John Trapp wrote, Christ alone hath done the deed. He is our sole Savior. In the justification of a sinner, Christ and faith are alone, said Luther. 
As wax and water cannot meet together, so neither can Christ and anything else in this work. Away then with that devilish doctrine of the saints' merits. If he has done it, then then don't bring forth anything to add to Christ's work. If he has done it, then rejoice. It's all accomplished. We don't have a single crumb of our own righteousness to put upon the scales. The way with this thought that so many have, that, that I've done some bad, but I've done more good, and I think the good will outweigh the bad, and so I'll be all right with God. It's rubbish, the Bible says. You can't stand in anything you've done, but, but God has sent a Savior who's done it. He's accomplished. It's not the work of man. It's the work of God. Do you rejoice in that today? Do you sing joy to the world? Not because man has pulled him up, himself up by his own bootstraps or, or because society has conquered through advances in science and technology or medicine. Not joy to the world because we're evolving to a kinder, gentler society and soon we'll be done with wars. No, joy to the world because he has done it. He's accomplished a great victory. That's to be our great confidence. So we're called to abandon our excuse-making for our sin. And we're called to forsake any trust in our own moral qualities or accomplishments. And we're called to confess that we are slaves of sin and Satan. And we stand under God's wrath unless another has acted for us in our place and won the victory, and Jesus has. He has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained him the victory. What a conquering Savior. Boys and girls, this Savior is not just for moms and dads and grandpas and grandmas. It's for you too. Charles Spurgeon, in his Treasury of David, uncovers a sparkling little story about a church in northern Italy where, where Sunday after Sunday a ragged little boy came to worship and he, he seated himself front and center directly before the pulpit and he, he listened with riveted attention upon the words of the preacher. And then suddenly he wasn't at church anymore. And though the, the pastor had several times before hurried off the pulpit to try to catch this boy, he was always gone. Nobody knew where he was from or where he came from. And now he wasn't at worship anymore. And then one day, a man came to see the minister and he said, there's someone very, very ill and he, he really wants to see you. And I'm ashamed to ask you to go so far, six miles away, but he won't receive anyone else but you. And he's my son, and he really is an extraordinary boy, and he often speaks of things that I know so little about. So the minister agreed to to go, and that afternoon he went in the pouring rain and traveled this mountainous terrain and came upon this little shack of a cabin where the father was waiting in the doorway, and he he went into this, this home. And there, lying on some straw, was the boy he recognized who had been at church. And as the story goes, as he approached this little sick boy, the boy raised himself up and put out his arms. And he said, his own right hand and holy arm hath gotten him to victory. And then soon after, he died. 
What a tale. If that's the true tale, what a tale of a little boy, not well taught by his father, but well taught by the preaching, who upon his dying bed rejoiced in the good news, not of his moral qualities or what he had done or what he might do, but in the fact that there was a Savior who had gotten the victory. Will that be your confidence on your deathbed? Will those be the words upon your mouth? His right hand and his holy arm have gained him the victory. Is that your joy in living right now? Or could it be that our lives are so bemuddled and confused, we've lost all sense of proportion. We've become so focused upon all the things that we have to do that we can't hardly sing at all. And if we'd but listen to the gospel, we'd hear this morning God saying to us that Christ's right hand has already gotten the victory. He's accomplished it. The main thing that we need is already finished. The suffering has occurred. The atonement has been made. You've been reconciled to God. It's finished. It's accomplished. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. Well, what then? Well, then, exuberant praise. Stanza two. The exuberant praise deserved by the king. Verse 4, shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth, break forth in song, rejoice and sing praises. And the stanza goes on to talk about praising with the harp and, and with the psalm and with the sound of a horn and with the trumpets. And this whole idea that there should be this eruption should break forth. God has done it. One ancient writer tells of a a Greek town that when they were set free from their enemies, they broke forth with such loud shouts that the birds flying overhead fell to the ground stunned by the noise. I don't know if that's true. Quite a picture. I think of, of, of the ark coming into the camp of Israel when they're fighting the Philistines. Remember, the ark comes into the camp and they shout so loudly the earth shakes and the Philistines tremble. Now, that was a misplaced zeal, right? Because they were trusting a wooden box. And, and the next day in battle, the wooden box doesn't save them. God lets them be defeated and the ark gets captured. Ichabod, glory has departed. But if people can shout for such lesser reasons, certainly we ought to shout when we have a solid basis to do so because the Lord has won the victory. And the Lord's not calling here for some mindless frenzy or self-inventive worship, but he is calling for his people to use everything they've got to praise him. In the Old Testament, God had ceremonial reasons, perhaps, for instruments and different things. But, but still, God calls his people to sing and shout his praise. And we're to give ourselves to it. We have a solid reason. And it would be an odd thing, right, if we would not open our mouths when God has won the victory. A strange thing if in the assembly of saints there were not joyful praises when Christ has already won the battle. The Dr. James Boyce, the late Dr. James Boyce, wrote 
The Methodists have always been noted for their hearty singing of God's praises, and one reason for it is what John Wesley told his followers, Sing lustily and with good courage. Beware of singing as if you were half dead or asleep, but lift up your voice with strength. Be no more afraid of your voice now, nor ashamed of it being heard, than you were when you sang the songs of Satan. And Boyce adds, Not all of us have good voices, but I do not think the angels find poor voices offensive when hearts are full of gratitude to God. So we must sing, and we must parents teach our children to sing, that there's a reason to sing. And singing is not just for girls, it is the work of God's people to lift up their shouts of acclaim to Christ, to present ourselves before God as those who have heartfelt gratitude, not mere noise, but the noise of a heart that's grateful, a heart that's submissive and devoted and obedient and trusting. We should be enthusiastic in our praise. And we should want to sing with all the saints who love the Redeemer as we do. We should want to sing in the assembly of saints. We should, we should find this increasing delight and devotion of our hearts saying that when the Church gathers, I want to be there. When the elders call for worship, I want to be there. What better thing could I possibly be doing when the saints are assembling for worship than to gather with the saints? I've heard some wonder if the live streaming of worship services, and on top of that, the COVID situation has led us in our churches to substitute live streaming for in-person worship. Well, that would be sad. Because worship is not a spectator sport. We don't watch it like a football game on the screen. We're called to take the field and to be engaged and to rejoice. And yet, Even so, we know that gathering on Sundays doesn't mean that praise spontaneously erupts from us if it doesn't fill our hearts Monday through Saturday. We have to have born-again hearts to worship. Peter says you've been begotten, you've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that can't spoil or perish or fade away. And then he says, in this you greatly rejoice, though now you do not yet see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Joy inexpressible and full of glory. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Yes, it's not just a personal praise, is it? But the whole earth is summoned to erupt with praise for what God has done. You know, we find it a shocking thing if some church-type affair makes the news. It's a, it's a rare occasion, unless it's something bad, maybe. We, we, we're not used to seeing the church on the front page of newspapers or in headlines. But you see, that's just because the world's upside down. If the world had any sense of proportion whatsoever, this would be the news every single night. This would be the headline of every newspaper. The Lord has done it. 
This is the most meaningful thing that has ever happened or will ever happen, that God has visited the earth in the person of his Son, has carried sin away, has shattered Satan's arms, has delivered a people to his presence and worship. Shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. Psalm looks forward, doesn't it, to that day when God would break down the walls and and make of all nations one people. And it's remarkable, isn't it, to think about Old Testament Israel singing the psalm, right? Because they're not sending out foreign missionaries. That's not the age they lived in. God had chosen Israel, was using Israel in a unique way in in the midst of the world, But the gathering of the Gentiles had hardly begun. And yet here, well, John Calvin writes it like this. Even though the the nations were not, not yet able to call upon God, he writes, Yet it is evident that the Holy Spirit stirred up the saints who were under the law to celebrate the divine praises till the period should arrive when Christ, by the spread of the gospel, should fill the whole earth with his glory. So here are the Old Testament saints, they're, they're singing these words, shout joy for the Lord, all the earth. But if they look beyond the borders of Israel, there's nobody shouting God's praise. And yet there was the Old Testament church singing and waiting and singing and waiting for the great day of Pentecost. But the Spirit's poured out and the missionaries are sent out and the nations are gathered in. Because there is but one Savior, and he is the Savior for the world. It's not different religions for different people. There's not different ways of being saved, and each culture can can find their own way. There is one problem in the world, and it's that we have broke covenant with God and come under his wrath, and therefore under the bondage of Satan, and therefore under the tyranny of death. And there's one answer to that. One answer. And it's the right hand of God. The Lord says in verse 2 that he's revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. Mentioned some weeks ago, you know, the nations were watching. Because Rahab tells Joshua's spies that we heard how the Lord dried up the Red Sea when you came out of Egypt. We've seen what you did to those other kings On the other side of the Jordan. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. The world was watching Israel. But now the the mystery hidden in the ages has now been revealed, the apostle says. And now now Christ is presented. It's the one who saves, Jew and Gentile alike. The mystery hidden is now uncovered. Because man's problem is not self-esteem, it's not lack of finances... It's not even warfare or starvation, as bad as those are. But the problem is sin and the wrath of God upon it. And if you know that, then you know also that Jesus Christ has answered that great dilemma. He has brought peace between men and God by taking away sin. And for all who believe, You can stand 100% justified before God the moment you believe all sin paid for, all obedience given to your account, and you may stand before God accepted, and you may be adopted, therefore, as God's own beloved child, 
and have an inheritance in store for you, no matter what happens to you upon the earth. And so it should strike us anew, even in this season. That perhaps the person standing next to us at work who complains of many things, that in reality the one thing they need is the thing you know about. When they say to you maybe, do you know what would make me really happy? You can say, yeah, I do. I know what would make you really happy. And we ought to get past them the idea that to speak a word to the world is to impose upon them or to intrude upon their private lives because their lives are not private. God has gone public and announced that every human being is his creation. He has proclaimed the identity of every man, woman, and child. They were made by him, for him, and owe him worship. He's declared the grievance and offense of everyone. We know every person we meet is a sinner. These are not private matters. And God has given to us a gospel for sinners, for all who repent and who will turn to him. And so let us be bold to call all the earth to praise him. For that is the work of the church, to gather worshipers for the one who is worthy. It's not the right of our next door neighbor. It's not the right of our co-worker. It's not the right of any individual upon earth, no matter how wealthy or powerful or popular, to ignore God. And the thing that would truly make them happy is the thing that would bring glory to God, that they would turn to him, humble themselves, and give glory to the one who deserves it. Shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. Break forth in song. Rejoice and sing praises. Give it all you got, God says. Pull out all the stops. Break forth in praise. I have done it. I've redeemed you. But we're still looking for something more. And that brings us to the third stanza where we see the healing return. The healing return promised by the judge. Let the sea roar in all its fullness. Verse 7, the world and those who dwell in it, let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills be joyful together before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth with righteousness. He shall judge the world and the peoples with equity. All creation is invited to join in the praise because it will be a blessed state, won't it, when Satan is finally totally removed It's a a joyful thing to be under the rule and reign of Jesus. There's no happiness but under the rule of Christ Jesus. And and Satan can try to tell us that under Christ's rule, it's, it's so restrictive, it's so confining, but you can have happiness under my rule, he says, but it's not true. Satan may try to describe Christ's reign as a tear of a tyrant. But we've read the gospel accounts. We've seen the reign of Jesus break into the world. He heals people. He sets them free of demons. He feeds them. He speaks compassionately to them. He goes to the cross for them. Is that, is that the reign of some terrorizing, 
tyrannical dictator? No, but as John Calvin says, his power is exercised sweetly and so as to diffuse, diffuse the joy amongst his subjects. The power of Christ, the reign of Christ is exercised sweetly. He's the most benevolent ruler. At Christ's first victory, or first coming, he won that great victory over Satan. But, but the, the full effect of that victory, we're still waiting for. That's at the return of Jesus from heaven. And then he's going to put everything right. And then a broken and weary world will be made new. Romans 8 tells us that though all creation already now reveals the glory of God, it is, it is presently groaning as a suffering creation, waiting for Christ's return, waiting for the sons of God to be revealed, waiting for that, that day of the fullness of his victory. We know that environmentalism has many errors. But you know, the foundational error of environmentalism is that it assumes that, that what the modern world does to the environment is the worst damage. When in fact, the worst damage ever done to the environment happened before there were any cars, any fossil fuels being consumed, before there was any, hardly any population all upon the earth, the worst damage to the environment was done when there were two individuals upon the earth, Adam and Eve. And by their rebellion, they brought down God's curse. And under that curse, this creation is in bondage and is groaning as in birth pains, waiting for deliverance. Creation is, is standing on its tiptoes, looking for the coming of the great judge. It's like a a little child before the biggest Christmas present he's ever seen, waiting to open it while mom says, you got to wait a minute, you got to wait a minute. And he, with eager delight, is staring it down, eyes upon it. Creation is eagerly expecting the coming of Jesus, that it might clap and shout his praise. How much more than the children of God, when Christ who is your life appears, you also appear with him in glory. Ought we to be standing now on our tiptoes, waiting and watching and longing for that great day when the whole world will be remade as new? Dr. Boyce drew my mind back to the C.S. Lewis's Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, where remember how at the beginning of the book, Narnia is under the power of, of the wicked witch of the north, right? And the land is in a state of perpetual winter, winter and never Christmas. There's no signs of spring. But then when Aslan is on the move, then the ice begins to melt. Flowers begin to bloom. And this is the idea, right? That when Jesus comes, the whole of creation is renewed. And all of those eternal enemies are cast out. Those who had no joy in the king, who did not want to live under his reign. They can't remain there, for this is a realm, a creation, where Christ's glory will fill it, and all who will be there will rejoice in that reign. And there we will find our delight. As the mother of Jesus, Mary, pregnant with the Christ child, comes into the house of Elizabeth, John the Baptist, in the womb of Elizabeth, leaps for joy. 
He hadn't yet seen the cross. He hadn't yet seen the resurrection. And he certainly had not seen the return of the great judge. But he leapt for joy and Mary broke out in an echo of Psalm 98 about the mighty hand of God who's remembered his mercy and has done great things. Brothers and sisters, as we see what we have in Christ and as we are assured of what will be, we are to yield our lives to this Lord Jesus and to leap for joy. This is the Savior of the world. And as we look at this, which is his world, made by him and through him and for him, we are to pray and long and speak wherever we can that the world might come under his reign and find their joy in the only one who saves. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we do give you praise and we worship We thank you for the psalm and we pray by your spirit you would stir our hearts that we would sing the praise of our Savior and look for his coming. May he be glorified. May all men yield to him and gather worshipers, we pray, for the sake of our Lord Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen.